Hello, my name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Welcome to today's, uh, what will be the final signpost on uh, the book of Amos. And so today I want to read from Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the threshold shake. Bring them down in the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. No one will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the, the Arameans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake us. In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Well, Amos's final vision of God's judgment is the most terrifying and unsettling of all his visions. However, there is some good news for the chapter ends with a positive note. But before we can get there, we've got to explore the judgment. And so the chapter split into two sections. Verses 1 to 10 describe the finality of God's judgment, its inescapability and its fairness. In three short paragraphs, Amos removes any false hopes that his audience might have. The second section, verses 11 to 15, describes the glorious future beyond the judgment and introduces God's promises of restoration. So in the previous visions, Amos has seen a, a plumb line and a basket of fruit, but now he sees the Lord himself standing beside the altar. This is a, a typically Israelite concept and would have been readily accepted by his audience. 
And the phrase calls to mind Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple with its sense of the awesome holiness of God and the terrible wickedness of sin. But the altar here is probably not the altar in Jerusalem, but rather the altar in the temple at Bethel, where the people had worshipped the golden calf. The visions that Amos has described thus far in his prophecy have usually come in parallel pairs, but this final vision stands on its own. There is no parallel vision for the simple reason that after this judgment falls, there will be nothing left to warn the people about. This is it. Amos sees the people gathered for worship, and as we've seen throughout the book, their worship is false. They have thrown a cloak of religion over a life motivated by self. That charge is one that could be levelled, of course, at the church today. And so perhaps this final vision of judgment actually has a lot of resonance for uh, the church in the 21st century. And maybe we should really pay special attention to it in order to wake up from uh, our own um, folly. What the people of Israel had not realised was that God saw through their cloak of religion. And so instead of providing a sense of security and hope, their gathering in the temple only brings death and destruction, for the roof will fall in on them. And the relief of the survivors of this tragedy will be short-lived, because they will be killed by the sword. The destruction of the temple in this way is a sign to all the people of God's disapproval of their idolatry. Amos's vision is particularly terrifying because there is no escape from the judgment. And he makes clear in verses 2 to 4 where he lists five possible ways that he could try and escape God's mighty hand against them. Firstly, we're told that they could dig to the depths. The Hebrew word used here is Sheol. It's the place of the dead. It represented the deepest place a person could go. But even if they make the effort to dig there, God says, he will, they will find that he is already there uh, waiting for them. They could climb to heaven. Perhaps they thought they could hide in plain sight and not be noticed. But even if they could reach heaven, they would discover that God is already there. In Romans 8 and 38 to 39, the Apostle Paul says that neither height nor depth can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. And as these two points show, nor can they separate us from his judgment. They could hide on Mount Carmel. It had caves and thick forests which would make good hiding places, but God says even if they hide there, he will search them out and he will find them. They could hide at the bottom of the sea, but as Jonah found out, God is there also, and he commands all the creatures of the deep, and so just as Jonah couldn't hide from God there, neither can they. And they can go into exile when the nation is conquered, and some of them will indeed be taken into exile in foreign lands and serve foreign peoples. Yet no matter what foreign lands they may go to, God will intently still fix his gaze upon them for judgment. Even if some people were beginning to believe Amos' dire predictions and were beginning to think about how they might escape, Amos shows that there is simply no geographical place in heaven or on earth in which to hide from God or escape his power. And as if to drive the point home, Amos goes on to describe the awesome majesty of God. He is the Lord God of hosts, the heavenly warrior, and the power of his touch dissolves nature and makes the earth shake. And so we learn that this disastrous and inescapable judgment is underwritten by the very nature of God himself. Amos has already experienced 
direct opposition to his message and it's unlikely that this message of final judgment would have been received any better. So he was probably found himself heckled by the crowd. And in verses 7 to 10, Amos refutes the possible unlikely objections of the Israelites who are convinced that disaster will not overtake them. They base their confidence on God's past actions and promises, for God had promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land forever. And he called them out of all the families of the earth to be his own people. Furthermore, they're convinced that his great act of deliverance in the exodus from Egypt guarantees that, that he will continue to bless them. And certainly they cannot believe that God would destroy them. The problem was that the exodus for the Israelites had become just like Christmas is for us today. Instead of an opportunity for genuine awe and worship, it's just an event to be exploited for our own ends. Interestingly, Amos doesn't dispute any of the facts, uh, these facts of history, but rather he challenges how the Israelites have interpreted them. For they've turned them into absolute guarantees, disconnected from their covenantal relationship with God. They have consistently failed to connect God's blessing to their righteous behaviour. They think he will care for them no matter what they do. But the covenant conditions state that if God's people do not follow him or maintain their covenant relationship with him, he will not automatically bless them. Blessings are not a right to be claimed, but the fruitful outworking of a godly life. We should note that in verse 10, God makes a distinction of sinners among his people which is not to say that some of his people never sinned, but rather that some have sinned without any remorse. Repentance or any attempt at living faithfully to the covenant. These closing verses of Amos' prophecy highlight perhaps the greatest danger facing those who would consider themselves to be the people of God, namely to underestimate the seriousness of sin and its effects on our relationship with him. It makes you wonder if we also, like the ancient Israelites, have forgotten the awesomeness of God and the terribleness of sin. So much of our worship in churches is so triumphalist. There's no challenge. Um, We don't face any challenge by being confronted with God's awesome, holy, uh, terrible uh, righteousness. People who've been in church for a long time, who might have been brought up in a Christian home, who may have even made a profession of faith and been baptised, tend to look at the good things God has done for them in the past and assume that he's still on their side and always will be. They also remember the good things they've done for God in the past and assume that they are still on his side. In both cases, such people make the fatal and deceptive mistake of basing a relationship on past experiences and ignoring present realities. You can't sin with impunity, without remorse, without repentance and think that you'll still get a free pass. We cannot continue to deliberately sin without any remorse or attempt at holy living and assume God's going to continue to bless our lives and not visit us with some form of discipline or judgment. We need to grasp this truth that it's not so much what our relationship with God was like Uh, many years ago that matters but rather what is our relationship with God like right now in this moment the Israelites had experienced the grace of God but then so had the Cushites and so being the people of God didn't give the Israelites an unfair advantage rather it gave them a greater responsibility to be faithful 
I've said in a previous signpost that Amos's prophecy has been bad news heaped upon more bad news. But all that changes in the last five verses of this prophecy. The change in content and tone of Amos's message is so sudden and abrupt. Uh, and the contrast with the rest of the prophecy is so vivid, some scholars think that it was added on later by someone else. And it's certainly true that this is the first direct piece of good news in the prophecy, which up to now has been full of judgment. But if you read Amos carefully, you'll find that in the midst of all the warnings about judgment, Amos has constantly emphasised the faithfulness of God, the hope of mercy that's available to everyone who turns to him. Furthermore, in these final verses, Amos returns to the three great themes with which he began. God is the Lord of history. He's the Lord of creation and he is the God who speaks. The previous chapters of the prophecy have all been about what God plans to do because of their past and present behaviour. But these final verses are a revelation of the future. That revelation is good news for it states that there will be a remnant left after the judgment and that God will bless them abundantly. So let's explore just for a minute those three themes. God is the Lord of history. We tend to think of history as an ongoing process of struggle between ideologies and civilizations. In 1992, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History and the Last Man, in which he claimed that with the success of liberal Western democracy, history had reached an end point and that this would be the final form of government and ideology. But the rise of fundamentalist Islamic politics and the resurgence of far-right ideology in the West have since proved him to be very wrong. But even if they hadn't disproved this theory, the fact is that history will continue until it reaches its climax. And that climax will not be a form of political government or a particular ideology. It will be when Christ finally returns. And the new heaven and the new earth are established for all eternity. That end of history will include not just Israel but other nations as well and in fact all who are God's people through faith in Christ. It's not just a random series of events working towards a random conclusion. It is the plans and purposes of the Lord of history coming to fruition. God is the Lord of creation. He's once more revealed as the Lord of creation for when history reaches its climax with the coming of the son of David, uh, all of creation will be renewed. In that day, God will not only remove the curse of Genesis 3, but will also bring into being a new heaven and a new earth. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I'm all for trying to save the planet. I think that Christians in particular have a great responsibility to be green, as it were, for God gave uh, humanity responsibility for to care for creation. And as people in a direct relationship with God, we ought to be leading the way in obedience to his commands. Yet at the same time, we need to recognise that caring for the planet and saving it are different things. And the planet will only really be saved from mankind's exploitation when God renews it at the end of history. 
Amos's picture of the fertile earth merges into one of the people returning to their land to rebuild cities, plant vineyards and enjoy the blessings of peace. The devastation of judgment will give way to peace, prosperity and abundance as the people return not just to the land but to covenant faithfulness as well. And he is the God, God is the Lord who speaks. The climax of history and the renewal of creation will be brought about by the word of God. Several times that we are told that God declares that these things will happen. In other words, God is the God who speaks and what he speaks comes to pass. Throughout scripture, God is revealed as the God uh, who speaks and what he speaks brings both blessing and judgment. And these words of Amos are not his imaginary account of a uh, hypothetical future. They are the words of God who has committed himself to his people by promises which he cannot and will not break. The story that Amos has told has largely been a story of tragedy, sin and judgment. But that is not the full story, nor is it the end of the story. For in the end, God promises to restore the fortunes of his people and to plant them with eternal security in the land of their inheritance. The unshakable and immutable truth of this is underscored with the final words of Amos's prophecy, says the Lord your God. Over 10 weeks we have journeyed through Amos's prophecy and it's been a hard word of judgment. So I want to take just a couple of minutes to reflect on what it might have to say to the church in the 21st century. I think the primary message to us through Amos has been the call to get real with God. It was the failure to do that. It was the root cause of the sinful lifestyles of the Israelites and the judgment that fell upon them. It's true that they were religious, but their religion was, was just an empty cloak. It was empty, empty tradition. And Amos's prophecy challenges us to take a close look at our own lives to, to see whether or not in truth we really are worshipping God, whether our religion is just a cloak for selfish living, if we're just going through emotions. Worshipping God is not an activity that we do in a particular building on a particular day. It is to the way that we ought to live day by day, moment by moment. And so it must come from our very hearts, the very centre of who we are. It's the why and the what of all that we say and do. It is therefore inextricably linked to our attitude and behaviour towards other people. As the Apostle John writes, if anyone says, I love God but hates his brother... Well, you know, how, how, can you, how can you say you love God and then hate your brother who's made in your brother, uh, God's image? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so we see that love is primarily expressed in self-giving sacrifice on behalf of others. Amos challenges our complacency, complacency to think that we will not escape the judgment, that we will escape the judgment of God. If Amos teaches us anything, it's that the pretense of religion will not save us from the wrath of God to come. And so Amos really challenges us that we better make sure that we are right with God by living lives of embodied allegiance to Jesus, the saving King. Thanks for listening.